good to see you. And it's also good to be seen by you. Greetings to everyone online. Um, praise God as we gather on this, um, what is known as, as Palm Sunday. And as we approach this season, I must say that it's, uh, and I was saying this this week at work actually, um, the Easter season is definitely one of my favorite times of the year, if not my favorite time of the year. Um, and it's, you know, it's not because of Easter eggs, bun and cheese, um, fry fish, uh, and all of the other kind of traditions that we keep up um, at Easter time, but it's because there is a declaration of Christ which for me is just irrefutable. There's a way in which this celebration has much greater significance than just an annual festival on our calendar. You know, a bank, couple bank holidays, some time off work, and it's spring. And, you know, so they, re, they redefine the Easter egg. It's about new life because of spring. Not because of he who rose from the dead and promises new life. But it's new life because of spring, and so you get little bunnies. representing new life. But there's something so irrefutable about the testimony of Christ that really as Christians should cause us to rejoice greatly. Not just because we've received the understanding of Christ's testimony, but because we know that there's no one who can refute it. Jesus actually was slain. He was actually publicly crucified, certified dead. And yet actually rose from the dead. And those who bore the testimony and shared the story done so at the cost of their very lives. And as gruesome, gruesome as that sounds, that is a cause for great rejoicing. Because we know that we're not engaged in a faith that is merely of human ingenuity. Somebody just made it up. And so, um, for me, that's one of the reasons why I feel um, so um, just delighted around Easter season. Because it's an opportunity to, for people to actually have to consider Christ. And for us as believers to be able to put Jesus before people. And so... Today, as we kind of head up Easter week, if you like, I want to take a slightly different focus. Um, today's, as Pastor B said during the announcements, at the top of the announcements, is, is known as Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday when Jesus rose into Jerusalem a week before his crucifixion. This is the Sunday when literally they say a, a week is a long time in politics, right? Everybody was celebrating him, throwing, like waving palm leaves, throwing their clothes, throwing palm leaves on the ground as he was coming to town on the, on the donkey. Hosanna, Hosanna, Savior, Savior, Savior. Everyone's celebrating Jesus, but that's not going to be my focus today. And I felt that as we come out of our Apocalypse Now series, the book of Revelation, there was a certain weightiness a certain weightiness as you got to the end. I mean, we, we got right to the end and 
New heaven and new earth, no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. And we say, yes, praise be to God. What a great expectation. But before you get to that, it gets worse before it gets better, right? Chapter 19, rider on a white horse who will tread out the winepress of God's wrath. And all the birds were called from the heavens to gorge on the flesh of his opposition. I mean, I know when uh, we we sat through that chapter a few weeks back, that was weighty, that was heavy. To consider that, that's speaking of people like you and me. The interesting thing is that it can feel like there's somewhat of a disconnect almost between Palm Sunday and the joys of the resurrection and the realities of the revelation and the judgment that's pictured therein. I think that one of the reasons why it is such a a disconnect especially at this point in history is is really because people social commentators say some some of you guys heard of a a, a brother called Simon Sinek S-I-N-E-K and he's gone viral numerous times on YouTube Insta etc for his his he's a leadership specialist leadership guru and um, very, I, I, I definitely say you can engage with any of his stuff that you would find online and you'd find it beneficial and helpful and insightful. And he, I guess he kind of has put into terms what many have kind of sensed but not really been able to articulate. He talks about this generation being the most entitled generation ever. And, you know, maybe... Um, uh, historians, deep historians might want to kind of uh, challenge that. But there's such a level of entitlement that it's been, become characteristic of this generation. A generation where they're really very much inclined to want success in an instant. And so when it comes to his particular focus is um, careers and establishing yourself in a career and how millennials find it such a struggle to establish themselves in a career because they've been in the job three months and they feel like they're not making an impact. And you're like, but you've been here three months. But their mentality is, let's, it's supposed to happen in an instant. I mean... Three months is long. It's a long time in the world of social media, you know? And so he kind of then breaks down some of the reasons why this this generation of millennials, as they're known, would have that mindset. And he says, look, it's not, it's not, they've been, they've been dealt a bad set of cards. On one level, he identifies four things. He says, parenting. Parents, you know, were given medals for taking part. And so, you know, that, that undermined any kind of sense of hard work. 
any, any kind of sense of durability, commitment. Uh, he talks about technology and the way that with technology, you can get whatever you want in an instant. I mean, I know what it's like. I pay for Prime, and if my thing don't come next day, when it says it's going to come next day, I feel cheated. It's like two days. What am I paying for? And forget the days when you were on 28-day... <laughs> 28-day delivery felt like it was good. You know what I mean? You can get, you can get certain um, uh, same-day delivery on your shopping. Like, I mean, and so there's a level at which technology has made things so much more um, accessible and easy that it's shifted expectations. Shifted expectations. I'm going to come back to you, Brother Andrew, because I know you're trying to tell me something. I'm... I want, I want to hear, I want to hear. Oh, the iGents. I don't even know how to explain that term. That's a new one on me, still, Doc. So, um, and fundamentally, there's a certain level of impatience that um, uh, iGents or millennials have. And so, you think that somebody can, you know, set up a, a social media account on one of the platforms and they can apply certain techniques, and within the course of a year, they can be a millionaire. That is not an exaggeration. That is not even uh, an abnormal idea. No degree needed. <laughs> no, no post-grad. No business plan. Like... You can use technology, and so there's a certain level of impatience. Um, and in a world where people are very concerned with success in the bottom line, it just reinforces this sense of entitlement. For those who may be a bit older, it might look a bit different from your point of view. You know, you have probably been, you know, um, embedded with a really strong work ethic. You've got to work harder than everyone else and you will find success. And so do your studies, learn your books, get your papers, and you've you got to be at least twice as good as the person next to you and three times better as the other person over there. And yet, there's been a generation who have given themselves to that, and two things have happened. On one hand, they've done that, and they've not found success. We know that pain, right? And you've got the degree, and you've got the experience, and you go for the opportunities, and you're not getting the success. You're not prospering in the opportunities. Other people, for other reasons, are just accelerated beside you as you get overlooked. And then you kind of begin to think to yourself, like, what was all this about? Just work hard. Okay, maybe I just need to work harder. But that kind of lack of fulfillment, because the, the dream hasn't been realized 
at least yet. The second thing that happens is actually people do gain the success. They gain the success and they're still unfulfilled. And so you've got the, the job of your dreams, but now you're thinking of leaving it because they're not, they're not really um, given to flexible working. And I want to have more freedom. And I want to be able to work remotely on my timetable and not theirs. And all of a sudden, what was the job of your dreams has now become less than satisfying because expectations increase. But nonetheless, it can suggest that actually, huh, we are the center, we are the focus, and our satisfaction is paramount, is primary. All of this can cause us to struggle with how we understand the gospel. Because as we approach Easter, there can be a sense of Jesus died for your sins and has got a wonderful plan for your life. And we say, of course he, should, of course he did. Why wouldn't he? Of course he would have a wonderful plan for my life because I've got a great plan and I'm, I'm, I'm excited that he's going to enhance that and take it to another level. <laughs> but seriously, often that's how people approach God. You know, if... if <laughs> You get to that point where you're like, juju's not an option. And so maybe I'm going to work some holy juju through Jesus, but at least I'm still going to try and achieve the same end. I'll quote my Psalms and I'll, Lord's Prayer and Bible open and tune into the service and Lord, make it happen. Come on. Best version of me, best life now, or whatever the latest phrase is. I can't keep up. Can I get that bag? No one's going to twist my crown. Or... <laughs> and if we approach the gospel like that, if we approach Easter like that, if we approach Jesus like that, we will never fully appreciate the goodness of God's grace. We will never fully appreciate the greatness of God's grace until we appreciate the depths of our own depravity. Easter Sunday really makes no sense without Good Friday. But if we don't rightly understand Good Friday, we will never make sense of Easter Sunday. And so I'm going to turn our attention to Mark chapter 15. We're going to look from verses 6 to 15. And this is a, an incident um, in the, the final hours of Christ's life. An incident that's well known, but sometimes I feel is often rushed over. Um, all right, let's see. Is this connect working? Uh, I'm going to... Oh, not that one, brother. The other one. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah. There we go. Cool, cool, cool. 
Yeah, you can leave it on that side um, until camera's needed. So Mark chapter 15, verses 6 to 15. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him up to be crucified. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that you have revealed yourself. That our understanding of you, our knowledge of you, our interaction with you is not reliant on us, but on you. And Lord, you are faithful and you are true and you are sure. Furthermore, you are alive and active in this world, in, even in this place, even in our hearts right now by your spirit. And so, Lord, as we engage with your word, I pray that, Lord, you would engage with our hearts. That, Lord, you would do a work in us that would strengthen us in relationship with you. Wherever we're at, Lord, that we would be brought closer to you through this moment, through your word. That, Lord, we'd have a right view of you and your work through Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your word, and Lord, we expect much according to your will, and in your name, amen. Somebody once said that grace can be viewed as an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense and it's absolutely true but there is a level at which an attitude of entitlement can cause God's riches to look like pittance before us see my proposition today is very simple every single one of us needs to recognize and understand that I am Barabbas now, I'd even call on you to say that right now. I am Barabbas. 
Now, you might not even feel like saying that because you're kind of thinking, oh my gosh, what kind of confession is that? <laughs> I, I'm the head and not the tail about Barabbas. I'm above and not beneath about Barabbas. I'm more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus who loves us about Barabbas. There is no crown without the cross. I want to just present three ways in which we are Barabbas. Three ways in which we are Barabbas. Three ways in which you are Barabbas. Now, this, this Barabbas individual, we're not told, told much about. We're not told much about Barabbas. History doesn't tell us much about Barabbas outside of the scriptures. But we're able to glean a few things from the scriptures. Barabbas, the name. Well, the first thing is, we are all Barabbas. Now, you might think, you can't just say the same thing again to prove your point. <laughs> There's three ways that we're Barabbas, yeah, because we have to be able to say, I am Barabbas. And the first way is, we're all Barabbas. The name in and of itself is somewhat interesting because the name is a, a, a compound of two um, parts, if you like. Bar and Abba. Now, Bar is a common sort of Aramaic structure which represents the term son of. So we see in scripture, Simon is known as Simon Bar-Jonah, as in Simon, son of Jonah. And so that's how they used to do their surnames in those days. Um, we, we, my family name, my surname is Buckle, but if I was in that culture, it would be Ephraim, son of Garth. Yeah. And so that's how they would define their surname. The interesting thing is, Bar Abbas isn't really a clearly defined name. Because Abba basically means father. We see this in Romans 8. Now we call him Abba, father. And so it could be, knowing that Barabbas was one who was a criminal, that this was his road name. This was his street name. Because it doesn't tell us anything about him. It just says, son of father. Now, he's alive, and so you'd expect him to have had a father, regardless of his relationship. But it doesn't give you a, a, a family to associate him with. It's funny because... Actually, many of the names that we encounter in the Bible are actually what we would say nicknames in, in regular terms. You could say street names, whatever. And so, for example, Peter, his name was Simon, but Jesus re renamed him Peter, which is rock. So it's like he was calling Peter Rocky. And that was the name, even now, 
the, the epistle of Peter, first Peter. That wasn't his given name. That was the name that Jesus called him as they rode together. James and John were known as the sons of thunder. James and John bar thunder. <laughs> and so it's helpful for us not to have too sanctimonious a view of Jesus and his relationship with his disciples and how they lived in those times as if, you know, everything is brand new. No, they had street names in those days and it's quite possible that Barabbas, son of father, was just a pseudonym, one of those anonymous, don't talk out my government name because I'm, I'm active out here, and so we'll just keep it low, low. Yeah? Maybe. Nonetheless, from our point of view, it's something that we can relate to. Because the sense, there is a true sense in which God is our Father. He is our Father in that He is the progenitor. He is the source of all life. And so we can recognize that all of us as those made in God's image are products of the Father's will. Now, we have to be careful how we say that because the reality is that there are many people who have no relationship with God but still think it's okay to say, God is my Father. You know, I've grown up Throughout my life, hearing, you know, God is my father. I'm a, I'm a God bless you. And this person clearly has no relationship with God as if God is, they're happy for God to be treated as some absent father in their life who has no influence and no say. It's just someone that they give some kind of acknowledgement to. That's not the kind of relationship that God has purposed to have with his children, with those whom he has fathered. We see this in John 1 verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You notice the right to become children of God is conditional. So, in as much as God made you, he is the source of your life, you don't have a father-child relationship with God until you have put your faith in Jesus and submitted your life to him. You don't gain the privileges, you don't gain the favor, you don't gain the benefits, you don't have the support, you don't have the, the child love that a parent has for their child until you've put your faith in Jesus. There's no doubt that there is a kind of generic love. It's like, I love my children and I love you all. Do I love you the same way I love my children? It's an obvious answer, right? And none of you would grudge me for that because I have wonderful children. No, not really. Because they're my children. Because they're my children. And I, and I wouldn't grudge you for loving your family differently to the way that you love others. Because that's how life works. 
God loves his children who have come to him through Christ differently to those who haven't. And it's important that we recognize that. Secondly, as our source, God has the right of ownership and the authority of authorship over our lives. One of my favorite verses of scripture that is a, is a, it's a, you know, um, north, south, east, and west, right? They're the points of the compass. They're known as cardinal points. And so if you're navigating, those points are kind of established principles that you can use to find your way through life. And this verse is one of those verses in scripture, not often quoted in, in general, but this, this is one of those cardinal points, cardinal principles that can help you to navigate your life. For from him, the source, and through him, the sustainer, and to him, the purpose, are all things, everything. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Speaking of Christ, um, Colossians 1.16, Paul says a similar thing. For by him, all things were created. All right, so where does everything come from? It wasn't just an accident. It wasn't just a big bang. We come from God. Everything in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, no matter what kind of levels and status, all things were created through him and for him. So we exist for God. Maybe there's been a point at life where you've been you've experienced a product recall. Product recall. I remember um, we bought a washing machine one time and watching the news and they said that the manufacturer was re recalling this particular washing machine um, and it's because there was a defect that, it, it, that they needed to rectify. And so they would either send out an engineer to rectify it or replace it. But fundamentally, if you didn't want your kitchen to catch fire as a result of this washing machine, then you needed to respond to the recall. Manufacturers have the right to do that. Now, how we respond to that is a matter of choice. But if we don't respond to it, we have to prepare to accept the consequences. God has the right of ownership and the authority of, of authorship as it comes to life. And so God has the right to say to us, this is how you're meant to function. God has the right when he sees us going defective to recall us and say, no, no, come back to the source and receive a, a, a renewal in order that you might function according to how I've purposed. But the problem is people choose to ignore God as if he doesn't matter. And so then have to accept the consequence of ignoring the fact that God is the one who made us and sustains us and guides our very existence. 
So we are all Barabbas. We are all from God the Father as our source. And even if we're not all in relationship with him as children through Christ, God has authority over all of us. And that means God has the right to judge every single one of us for the ways in which we might ignore his product recall. He has that right. And it's important we recognize that because if, like me, there's times when you have or do struggle with the concept of God's judgment. It's because we're not really appreciating the sovereignty of God's authority. That God made us, not we ourselves. So we are all Barabbas, and we are all rebels on death row, apart from Christ. And so what we see is, Barabbas It tells us in verse 7 of chapter 15. It says, Among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection. Let's understand that Barabbas wasn't just a thief. In some of the Gospels, it refers to Barabbas as a thief just like it refers to the thieves on the cross. The Romans did not waste time crucifying thieves. That would just be like an endless trail of people that were to be crucified. They generally crucified people who were enemies of the state, politically or religiously proven enemies of the state. And so... Here we see, fundamentally, Barabbas was a terrorist. He had defied the Caesar's authority. In fact, he had endeavored to raise up a rebel rousing against Caesar's authority. And in the process, had committed murder. And notice that he wasn't alone. It says, among those in prison who had committed. So there were others there. Maybe his whole gang got wrapped up. Now you might think, ah, you know what? It's a bit much to say I'm a terrorist and I deserve to be on death row. I mean, you know, I do a few things wrong, but I've never killed it. I'm not... Whoever uh, we used to say, and we're not Charles Manson. Um, I just saw um, they put out the thing about Jimmy Savile, and people are watching it and just thinking, how in the world did this happen? This guy abused multiple and like and and you think that guy is just off key, but I'm not him. He he, he might be the one we want to call Barabbas, but that's not me. But if we say that, then we don't understand the holiness of God. Romans 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God 
Yeah? God's judgment is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Notice it says all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So there isn't no kind of facet, there's no expression of unrighteousness that God will not judge. God has given his law, and in having given his law, it stands there, the Ten Commandments, as the ultimate reference by which we're able to understand right or wrong. Now, it would be a very, very short survey if I were to basically ask the question, okay, um, could you answer yes if you've never broken one of the commandments of God? And most people will be thinking they don't even really know the commandments these days. But the basics... Don't lie. <laughs> We've all told lies before we even knew what it was to lie. You've seen the little Insta videos, TikToks, the child's there, food all over face. Did you touch the cake? And we're like, oh, so cute. Did you touch the cake? No, mommy. <laughs> Wiping face. And we're like, oh, they're so sweet. Who taught the child to lie? And the reality is that we will find ourselves breaking the commandments, particularly when there are two basic facets. When our deepest desires are denied we will be ready to break the law. When our deepest desires are denied, we will be ready to break the law. Also, I want you to get it right. When we are faced with our deepest fear, survival is probably the strongest instinct known to man. And so we will lie, we will deceive, we will cheat if it's to save our skin. That child knew that it was a problem when it was called to account. And so the easy answer is to just Deny all knowledge, it wasn't me. And so whether it's our deepest desire or our deepest fear, when there's an issue with either of those two things, we will find ourselves in a place where we will do things that we would even be disgusted at ourselves. And I'm, I know that we've all found ourselves in that place at one time or another. We've said something, We've done something, and we just thought, how could I? And yet, time doesn't forgive sin. And so, 
even if that was in the past, that has to be accounted for before God. How do we account for our sins? Especially when, as it says in James 2 verse 10 here, whoever keeps the whole law, you've kept every commandment of God and you've, and you've just been living immaculately and then fails in one point. So you didn't steal, you didn't murder, you didn't commit adultery, fornicate, sex outside of marriage. But you had greed in your heart, envy, jealousy. Just that one thing, it says you're accountable for having broken the whole law. You see, that might seem quite harsh, but what it does is it demonstrates our capacity. The capacity of our depravity. If we can break one, we can break any of them. Having broken one, we're guilty of breaking them all. And so we are, in the sight of God, before his holiness, as Barabbas was before Pilate. Our rebellion against God, uh, some of you will know that I used to be actively involved in, in music and using music for ministry purposes. And way back in the early days, um, we used to have this tune, Ain't Got Time. And in the chorus, it says, we all make mistakes. Why not turn round and take God's grace? If I were you, I would stand up in the line. Why? Oh, why? We ain't got time. And so the whole idea was like, we, we, ain't got, we all make mistakes. Like, come on, just admit it. And so come, come before God now, or you're going to have to come before him later. And that was just an early expression of our understanding of the gospel and our faith in the Lord. But the reality is that it's more than just mistakes. We don't just make mistakes. We are guilty of defiance. We are guilty of rebellion. And so we're on death row. The Lord said this in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. To Adam, as it came to eating of the tree of the garden. You may surely eat of the tree of the garden... Sorry. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Why? For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. And people say, oh, you see, the Bible uh, is full of contradictions. It's full of errors, man. Because look, it says in the day that he eats it, he will surely die. And he never died when he ate it. He went on and he had kids. and duh, 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 duh. It's, it's not really that deep or complicated. And there's a level at which we're not really getting the full sense. If we understood the original language, then we would understand better what it's saying. Because what the Lord actually says to Adam is, and in the day that you eat it, in dying, you shall surely die. And so the process of death begins from that point. 
And that process of death will be fulfilled, but that surely die is more than just a physical death, but there would be a spiritual death in that as well. We are, as the scripture tells us, a person who is a spirit, has a soul, and lives in a body. And so the experience of death is such that it is, permeates all the, the full, fullness of our being. And so because of God's holiness, we stand as rebels before him, like Barabbas. We are as guilty as Barabbas, we are as guilty before God as Barabbas was of murder and rebellion before Caesar. And you can only reject that if you've never ever committed a sin. I don't need to press you on that. So, we are all Barabbas, we are all rebels on death row, and yet Christ took the judgment that we deserved. As Barabbas was freed, it was regarded as a like-for-like -like transaction because the Jews realized that if they were going to have Jesus tried and convicted and crucified, they would have to have him on a serious enough charge. The Jews were not permitted to just take somebody and crucify them and kill them as capital punishment. For that, being under Roman rule, they had to get permission, which is why they brought Jesus to Pilate. And their accusation against him before Pilate was that he says he's a king. And you see a part. Anyone who says they're a king is no friend of Caesar. They're setting themselves up against Caesar. And so basically they're trying to say this guy is posing a threat to Roman authority, to Caesar. He's a, he's a terrorist trying to claim rulership that doesn't belong to him. And yet their real reason for bringing Jesus before Pilate was because they recognized that he claimed to be God, not just Caesar, not just king. And this is what they couldn't hack. And so Jesus came on a trial of treason. And when Barabbas, who was on a trial of treason, was released, it was a like-for-like -like exchange. It's interesting because I believe that the criminals who were crucified beside Jesus on his left and on his right were likely to have been amongst Barabbas's people, which in and of itself would have been mad. You imagine Barabbas walking free and seeing his guys that he got arrested with up there on the cross, knowing that he should have been up there. And there was nothing that he could do to get them down. Imagine that. 
And yet, as they hung there, listen to the conversation. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, Jesus saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Maybe they saw how Barabbas got off and they were like, Come on. Must can bust this case. But the other one, on the other side, said to him, rebuked him. Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And so he's recognizing, listen, we're here because we're meant to be. Like, we earned this. We deserve this. Jesus, nah. He, he, he clearly has done nothing. Everybody could see it. Herod could see it. Pilate could see it. The, the criminals on the cross could see it. Which demonstrated the hard-hearted nature of the religious leaders. Because they forced it to happen. And yet even the criminals, as they hung there on the cross, acknowledged the fact that they deserved, or at least one of them did. We need to be in that place where we acknowledge that we deserve the judgment of God. If you felt like you'd kind of heard the, the, the drama of the, the revelation and the judgment that is to come, and felt a certain sense of resentment, like, oh God, why would you do that? Then that's something that we need to present to God. Even at the thought of yourself having to say, actually, it's not that I, I deserve riches and blessings and favor, and, but as before God, I am guilty. And actually, just like that criminal on the cross who recognized we're here because of our own deeds and we deserve this. We need to be able to say that. And if there's a problem in our own hearts, we think too little of God and too much of ourselves. And it exhibits an attitude of entitlement. Because it's only when we get to that place when we can say, I deserve it. That the, the gift of God's grace, the gift of eternal life, becomes active and precious to us. It differently. Jesus turned to that criminal when he said, Lord, and he acknowledged Jesus as Lord. He said to that criminal, today you be with me in paradise. He didn't say it to the other criminal. He was only out for his own interests. But he said it to the one who had due recognition for the judgment that he had received and deserved and who was able to recognize Jesus as Lord. So Jesus took the judgment we deserved and it's important that we understand that we deserved it. If his sacrifice on our behalf 
isn't merely going to be a satisfying of our entitlement. Because if that's all it is, then we've got a problem. Do we really understand the riches of his sacrifice on our behalf? Do we understand the preciousness of the substitution? You can bet that Barabbas, if he was standing there, I mean, who knows? He might have just cleared out. As, as soon as he got free, he's like, you know what? Let me head out before they change their mind. But at any cost, he's going to think, wow, I'm free at the expense of this other guy who had done nothing wrong. And that's the place that we have to come to. By first recognizing that we are Barabbas, we are then able to appreciate the preciousness of Christ's sacrifice. When we are able to appreciate that we should have been on that cross, that we should have experienced the wrath of God, we deserve it. Then actually, when in a much healthier place to respond to the goodness of God and to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord. And so are you able to say today, I am Barabbas? I would hope that you're just a little closer to being able to say that. On Friday, we'll consider the suffering of our Lord and all that he went through on our behalf in order that we might know the goodness and grace of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you for the fact that you are good. Jesus, you came and you suffered as a terrorist as a criminal, as an enemy of the state, completely unjustly, because truly, not only are you <laughs> truly king of the Jews, but you are the king of all kings, the eternal son of God. And yet, Lord, you've done this for us, for all who would recognize that we are Barabbas, for all who would say, I am Barabbas, I am guilty before a holy God and deserving of judgment. We thank you, Lord, for your substitution, for the great switcheroo, that you would take the judgment of God in our place. I pray, Lord, that we would grow more aware, more appreciative of our own depravity in ways that would cause us to just abound and have enormous joy and greater um, celebration of your goodness, of having achieved that which we were absolutely not entitled to. So we bless your name and we thank you, Lord, today. Amen.
Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.